welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy, a podcast that looks at the inspiration, intention, action, and choices that you can make to bring more joy into your life, into the world, and into other people's lives. This is your host, Paula Jenkins. This is episode 243 here on Jumpstart Your Joy. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. And always, I am excited to be doing somewhat of a mashup episode here where I'm doing a partial look back on the conversation that I had about grief with author Julia Samuel. She's a psychotherapist out of the UK and the founder patron of the Child Bereavement UK charity. It was a real delight to have her on the show. And I am going to be first taking a look at an article that came out by the Harvard Business Review about the current state of affairs, if you will, around the coronavirus pandemic. Before we get to all of that, I want to give you all a very warm welcome and say thank you so much for tuning in this week. And always, it is a treat to have you here tuning in to Jumpstart Your Joy. This podcast has been around since 2015. And I think things have shifted a little bit in the past few weeks. I'm definitely trying to bring more joy to you, but also balance it out into the mental health aspects that you can take a look at as we're in the midst of this pandemic. I feel like there's this kind of balancing of both joy, but also how can you kind of check in with yourself and get the things that you need to feel well-resourced and centered and (laughs) you can get through your day. If you're new to Jumpstart Your Joy, you can find out more about myself or about the show over at jumpstartyourjoy.com. While you're there, you can find 242 past episodes where you can find lots of really cool ideas about how you can bring joy into your life. As you know, if you listen, the last question that I ask every guest is, what are three ways that you can think of to jumpstart joy in your world, in your life, or in other people's lives? And so there is a real treasure trove of ideas if you want to explore new ways to get in touch with joy during this time. While you're on the site, It would be delightful if you would sign up for the newsletter there, which is three joyful things. You can find that right there on the homepage of the website. And I send out a newsletter every week where I talk about the inspiration, intention, and action that you can take to bring more joy into your life. It's a lot of fun. Sometimes there's a super secret episode that comes out with those. And so all you got to do is sign up. I did not release a newsletter last week because I've been heads down working on my brand new business website, which launched on Friday, and it is at joyandpodcasting.com. It is a podcasting production company. So that is now out there. And if you're interested in starting a podcast, I'm also going to be opening up my very popular and much beloved Jumpstart Your Podcast class in the next couple weeks. So you'll get more information in the newsletter. Uh, That's probably the best way. So let's just jump into the first little thing that I found so interesting. March 23rd of 2020, the Harvard Business Review released an article on their website called That Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. And they're talking in this article about the coronavirus and the pandemic and some of the vast amount of emotions that we are all feeling about this. And I will link to this in the show notes for all of you. The thing that I found so interesting is, yes, there's this whole massive amount of emotions that we're all feeling, but it really struck me that in their speaking with David Kessler, who is an expert on grief, that much of what we're feeling is this grief. He's saying that there are 
a number of different griefs that are coming into play for us as a society and as a world. So let me quote here, the, the loss of normalcy, the fear of economic toll, the loss of connection. This is hitting us and we're grieving collectively. We are not used to this kind of collective grief in the air, end quote. And this then also goes on to talk about how we're also feeling anticipatory grief, which is something that doesn't come up that often in society, just because it's often a grief that we feel when the future is uncertain. And many of us, we don't necessarily feel this unless we're dealing with death. Taking that into consideration, I thought it would be really interesting to revisit the conversation that I had with Julia Samuel, who is a psychotherapist out of the UK. And what we really got into was talking about how grief impacts people, how people often don't have the tools they need to navigate through grief because it's not something we learn about in school or anything, and how working through grief is a difficult process. I thought it was really important to bring this up now. I know it's a difficult week in the U.S., and I thought her take on these things is uh, enlightening and was also very calming and full of promise to me. Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy, Julia Samuel. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm completely delighted to be here. What's <laughs> a title, Jumpstart Your Joy? It's such a good, like, put in the wires, put on a bit of gas and go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's what I aim to do. Um, it's a real treat. Maybe some listeners are a little confused at, at the conversation of joy and grief, but I think this is going to be a really insightful and interesting conversation. And so I'm just, I am delighted to jump into the topic with you. So thank you for being on. Would you tell us what you loved most as a child? What were your earliest sparks of joy? Oh, we had a swing in our garden and after school, I'd come home and I'd have an orange juice and I'd jump on the swing. And sometimes my horrible big sisters would come and push me too high, so I'd get really scared. <laughs> but most of the time, if I did it just myself, that thing of flying on a swing, I really remember, yeah. That is gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people relate stories of, of being outdoors and in nature. And yeah, there's something nice about being a child and having that space. I love it. So now, of course, you work with people in grief and bereavement. And you've, you've written an amazing book, and you also started the institution of Child Bereavement UK. Um, I'm a patron and a trustee, and very involved. Yeah, it is Child Bereavement UK, so we support families when a child dies or when a child is bereaved. We do that by either sort of direct contact with the families, by providing lots of resources and information, which anyone who's listening can get online, but also by training any of the professionals that would come into contact with bereaved families because, you know, how the adults around are with you, how they speak to you at the time of a tragedy stays with you forever and has a big impact on you for the rest of your life. So we try and do our best to make sure they get the best and most sensitive support. I believe you have a history of working in publishing before you moved into and how did you make that shift? What came up for you that you wanted to go into this line of work? I think there were early influences that were sort of less conscious, which was that both my parents were bereaved of very significant people when they were very young. So mm. by the time my mother was 25, her mother, her father, 
her sister and her brother, her entire family had died. And my father, his father and brother. And as a family, we never spoke about them. I didn't know anything about them. I vaguely knew their names. And there were sort of black and white photographs of them all around the house. And I think that was a sort of unconscious influence, this sort of feeling of these black and white photographs and the shadows of these people that had died. So I think that influenced Mm. me to go into bereavement. And the thing that influenced me to go into counselling was the love of connection the kind of that amazing feeling even just you and I like being open with each other and making a contact with someone that's more than superficial that's more that's going on about what's on the inside than the outside and I first saw that when I went with a friend to an AA meeting and I didn't know you could talk like that I didn't know that (laughs) you could say what you felt (laughs) that other people wouldn't just look at you like you were mad I mean, it's hard to imagine that now because it's a different world. You know, I did volunteering and then I did some training and it just step by step got me to where I am now. And I feel very, very lucky that I found something that I really love doing. Yeah, well, and I can understand that my own path. So I'm a certified life coach. And I think there's what you just said about the connection and having dropping as much of the filter as we can to have a real connection and a conversation is I think also part of the draw for me. I remember, so I went to Yale Divinity School for my master's and I was, a lot of people there were seminary tracks so studying to be ministers of some sort. I had to go take pastoral counseling. I was totally drawn to it because of the question that I couldn't shake of what do I say when somebody says that someone near them has died? Because I, I didn't know, I'm sorry doesn't work. I mean, it, it's lovely and it's, it shows some connection, but I didn't know how to go there. And that's where I wanted to go. So I can totally relate to you saying like, it's a very strange draw, but there's something about it that's like, no, I want to be able to be there for people in a way that's so different than what maybe society does. Can you know I have about five sessions finding out why you wanted to know that at that age? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's interesting. And I'm totally resonating with what you said about a history of family bereavement. And like, yeah, there's some interesting things in there. Because that's not usual, is it? I mean, it's not usual now. And I wish it was more usual, you know, because then I think those that are bereaved would have a much more sensitive response from those around them, including their, their own family. So I'm glad you did that. But it is interesting that you did and you did it so young. Yeah, well, and it is, it's unusual. And I don't even know that the the question got answered or or that there ever will be, maybe as a type A personality, I really want answers, but I don't know that I'll ever have that answer of what do I say? It's obviously dependent on the person. I think the, you're right that there isn't an answer, but the response that makes the most difference is acknowledgement, is mm-hmm. not trying to deny the grief or fix the grief or get the person to pull them out of their grief and it's the tone that you said and the way that you said as much as what you say is acknowledge I'm so sorry that this has happened to you this is devastating and being quite simple and straightforward I think where people feel most injured is when they feel it's being dismissed in some way and it isn't because people don't care it isn't because people are kind of unkind it's because they're scared Mm -hmm. and they either walk to the other side of the street because they don't know what to say or they tell themselves well you know I'll be intrusive I'll be upsetting them if I go and remind them of what's happened Mm -hmm. and I want to kind of shout extremely loud you you're not going to remind them of something they're obsessed with this this is all they're thinking about 
Mm. And the single most important thing you can do is the kind of love and connection of others when someone has died. That's the big thing that makes the difference. Yeah. So just more acknowledgement if you know them well enough, a hug, if not, you know, just a, a smile. People remember, you know, that in my book, there's a little tiny episode when someone's crying on a tube subway and someone, a total stranger, passes her a tissue. Mm. I mean, that stayed with her for four days. You know, it took one second. But it's, it is those small acts of kindness that help you with that absolute total sense of coldness and isolation that people feel when someone they really love has died. I love that that kind of reaching out it's and it like you said it's so simple. I mean that that feels like one of the little places where you jumpstart joy is. Yeah. If it's not joy in that moment, it's that you've given somebody a connection to say, "I see you, and you're real, and I see you have emotions, and we're all in this together." But it's the it's the warmth of joy. You mm. know, joy has many different constellations, <laughs> doesn't it? Mm. And it's the it's the thing that stays in your heart and warms you forever I mean she will never forget that moment and it's a significant moment as tiny as it was and it is it was a joyful moment because it was such it was so straightforward and so kind and so unexpected I think thank you for that because I think there is insight in there that my what 26 year old self was (laughs) wondering like how do I how do I do this so thank you she thanks you as well (laughs) let's see she probably could have talked to me and I could have told her then maybe So one of the things I really love about your book is that it is such a loving and beautiful glimpse into some stories of people who have been in grief. Um, I don't know if you want to walk through the premise of how you set it up, just so those listening can kind of understand the context for it. I feel it's totally unique in the space of literature to, to address something like this in a personal way, but also in, I mean, a fairly clinical way with your background. Thank you. That really means a lot. I mean, I, I, when people are grieving, they feel very chaotic and they feel very sort of lost and out of control. So I wanted to have a structure that was very straightforward and quite simple to follow, that you could pick it up and you could put it down, where there was both factual information about what could help them, what grief is like, some theories, how friends and family can help but also where they could resonate and see themselves in people's lives. So it's divided through stories of headed by the relationship with the person that's died. So it's a partner dying, parent dying, a sibling dying, incredibly tragically a child dying, and then um, facing your own death. And there are three case studies in each section. And the stories are very, very different because everyone's grief is influenced by their own personality, their own background and history of loss and their own history altogether and the support from those around them and what's happening at the time. So they're incredibly different and varied, but there are lots of strands that run through them all which people can recognise as themselves. And also I wanted people, I hope they have, they do to fit, hear my voice, not in an arrogant way, but in a way of so they could feel supported, that they could feel like there was a version of me in them with their own process when they were reading the story so that they could internalize that and use that to support themselves. 
Yes, that does come through. I love that you've just put it that way, that but some of the familial history is that my father lost his mother at 16. And so that that is probably, I was thinking as you were just saying that, that's probably why I wanted to answer that question. Um, yes. Do you want to talk a little bit of some of the people, their stories or, or what other things you have to say about them? The message that I'm wanting to um, get across is in some ways manifold, in other ways very simple. So the, the message is that you can't avoid grief. You know, people want to control it, they want to shape it, they want to stop it. And and naturally, of course, you don't want to feel pain. Nobody does. But grief has, it's a natural healing process that has a sort of passage and process of its own. And it's pain is the agent of change. Pain is the thing that forces us against our will and against what we wish to recognize the reality of the death of the death of the person that we love. So it's pain that forces us to adjust to our new present without the person in it. And so the message is that you need to find ways of supporting yourself through the pain. And it's often the things that you do to stop your pain that actually cause you harm. Yeah. It's interesting to call out that people tend to fall back to things that either offer an escape for whatever the pain is they're feeling. Um, and that it's, I know in some of the interviews I've even seen with you that you talk about what some of those patterns can look like for people. I'd love to dive into that a little bit because people are probably like, what are they? What are they? But like knowing that there are these things that seem to come up for people when they're going through the process of grief, because I think as we enter into the process of bereavement, it feels like a free fall Mm. and we're not ever told or it's never talked about like what that thing feels like or what you might experience so that you have a sense of Oh yeah, that's and not that you really check in or, or people are always that self-aware that they do, but but that you know there's a process and that you might do some of these things. Like for some reason I feel like there's there's solace in that for at least me. Why in society do we shut down grief and the process of grieving? I think it's it's the two things that sort of come together and conflate. One is that I think we have a kind of fear about death. And a kind of magical thinking that if I think or talk about death, I might hasten my own death or death of somebody else. So if I don't think about it, maybe it's not going to happen. But also we find the not knowing, the not having control. We don't know how we're going to die. We don't know what happens. Some people have faith and that gives them great support. But not being sure, particularly in the 21st century, I think drives people a bit nuts. So they just don't go there. They don't think about it. And then that means that they're incredibly ignorant and have no knowledge of the natural process of, of what they're likely to feel. And that feels like free fall. People talk about it feeling like they're going mad. It hits them like the weather. They don't have control. But they don't know that that is normal. So they not only are they feeling completely thrown by their grief, they also think, well, I'm not doing this right. I'm making a fuss. I've really got to get a hold of this and sort myself out. I've got to do better. And then they kind of self-attack and make what's already extremely painful much worse. Mm. And that's why I wrote the book, because I was so angry that people were so ignorant. You know, I want people to know that when you're hurting like this and you feel like you're mad, you're normal. doesn't mean you're mad. But what you need to do is two things. Look at what your default mode way of coping with difficulty is. And you can't stop that. It's not like you can switch it off and suddenly kind of start breathing and meditating and 
you know, going, la, la, let this come through my system. <laughs> if you've always been someone who, you know, took a slug of vodka, but at the same time, sort of recognise that what you, is in you that will happen and you can't stop it, but also develop other systems that balance that out so that you have some way of supporting yourself that is also helpful. It, it brings back to me the the conversation people can go back and listen to Fred LeBlanc, which is the lead mm. singer of Cowboy Mouth. And he talked about divorce and knowing that he had all of this grieving energy that had to go somewhere. And I think there was such wisdom in that, like knowing that he had to release it mm. or it was going to bring him down. He was going to go to a, a place that he didn't really necessarily care to go. And so for him, it was drumming. I mean, he's a drummer. So that's where it went or it was performing because that's what he does. And, and is there a way if someone's grieving for them to direct it? I guess, is it healthy to direct it in a way that feels more positive? Or do you need to feel the really hard stuff to get through it? I think, I think sort of yes and yes. I think, I mean, drumming is quite a physical thing. <laughs> and it's quite yeah. an expression of kind of rage mm-hmm. and grief feels like fear but it also feels like hurt and rage so drumming is I can see is immensely therapeutic and also he'd feel potent you know he'd be on the stage he'd be drumming doing the thing he's really brilliant at and really feeling connected to his emotion and what I talk about is that you need to find a way of expressing your grief and you can have all sorts of ways of expressing your grief that are not helpful you know, where where you have fights with people, where you're, you know, constantly raging around. And anger, it's fine to kind of scream into a pillow or bash a pillow, but afterwards you have to do some kind of meditation to calm you down. And then you have to sort of switch, watch something funny or listen to something funny so that you don't stay in the anger. Because otherwise, if you trigger the anger and let it really be expressed and don't find a way of winding it down, calming yourself down, soothing yourself, it just multiplies. Mm. So it's really about moving from states. It's allowing yourself time to talk to a friend or be sad or drum or do something that you feel is expressing your grief. It can be painting, it can be gardening. There's no prescription, but then doing also something that soothes you, that calms you, that distracts you that allows you to have a break from the pain and kind of choosing to do both, I think is very, very helpful. I don't know if this is what you see with clients, but do do a lot of people just, what, do they fear opening up the grief too much because they fear they'll get lost in it? Or like what seems like a lot of people hold back from experiencing either the crying or the outward expression of how sad they really are? Is there something in there that you see come up and or that you have a way to help manage for someone? I mean, I think that shows really inside. I think people are frightened that if I really let myself feel all I'm feeling, maybe I will never feel anything else, that it will literally just kind of wash me away. And actually, paradoxically, you know, the reverse is true, is that when you really let yourself kind of connect and find a way of expressing what you really feel, it releases you and you do whatever it is, you have that expression. And then it in fact creates a space in you to allow some healing. So it's the sort of opposite of what people think. It's this paradox by Mm. allowing yourself to feel and be the aspects of yourself that you most fear, you paradoxically release yourself to be free and heal and find a way of healing. 
And that's why people come and see me. But you don't have to see a therapist. I think people can have friends. And I, I think you can't, it's very hard to do that on your own. Mm-hmm. Do you think you need this witnessing and this connection with another person who can help stabilize you, can help support you, who can kind of be beside you in it? Because otherwise, I think it's much more frightening. That's beautiful. Yes. When I when I talk about healing, I am very much not of the school of this is a journey, then you're done and you have closure. Mm-hmm. You know, then you're fixed. I'm very much of the school of this is an ongoing, if it's a hugely important, significant love that's died, it's probably a lifelong process. That doesn't mean that you're not going to get on with your life and love again and live again. But this isn't about forgetting and moving on. It's about that the love continues, the love of the person that's died, finding a way of that residing in you and having ways of connecting to the person that's died and remembering it's not about forgetting and living your life with them in very much a sort of radically different place, but as part of you. And there will always be times, 35 years later, if you have a smell or a piece of music or a place, that that loss will come through you and you'll feel it again because, you know, your body remembers, your body holds the score. And so the person does stay part of you. So thank you for for diving into those things with me. Would you like to tell us where we can find your book? Um, any other information about where to get in touch with you? If somebody wants to reach out, where can they find you? So they can get it in any um, good bookstore, I hope. They can certainly get it on Amazon. And I can't, is it Barnes & Noble, the other American book? Yes. Mm-hmm. Barnes & Noble. And I have a website, www griefworks.co.uk where you could I have like lots of supportive things like I, I wrote in the book eight pillars of strength and that's kind of in more detail on the website and you can leave messages and there are postings from other people so it's a supportive website if you want to go there and also from there you can also get the book and last and most joyfully what are three ways that you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life in the world or in other people's lives Oh my goodness. Well, being with my grandchildren, or I get sent little videos of them on our family WhatsApp. So that I go, if I've had a really difficult day, I go and look at those every day. It's kind of the giggling, the, you know, and you can smell them on the video. I can just, it's fantastic. <laughs> Nature, walking in the hills, even in the snow or the sun or the wind or the rain. I love all weathers. I love being outside. And I think nature is incredibly healing and then I mean obviously hugging my husband who I really love but putting that aside which he'd be nice the other thing is I watch rom-coms and happy stuff people always want me to watch all the dead things <laughs> and I watch you know I'm watching the amazing Mrs Maisel at the moment oh so good um, so good so I watch stuff that makes me laugh because it it's takes me away from what I do in the day. Mm. Gives me hope again. I think it's a lot about hope and love, basically. I love it. Thank you so much, Julia, for being on and for sharing all of this. It's just been a real treat. Thank you. Real pleasure, Paula. Thank you for your really interesting questions and your openness with me too. 
thank you so much for tuning in this week. If you want to find out more about this episode, including links to the things that we've talked about, you can find the show notes at jumpstartyourjoy.com. And you can search for this episode right up there in the right-hand corner of the website. and You'll find it. While you're on the website, I know you're going to want to sign up for my weekly newsletter, which is Three Joyful Things where I take a look and give you guys the behind the scenes of what I'm really thinking about with each episode, including the inspiration, intention, and action, along with the choices that you can make in your own life to bring some of the things that each guest or I share into your everyday life. So it's a lot of fun. You can find the sign up for that off the homepage or within the show notes of every episode. And I would love to connect with you. I hang out a ton on Instagram, where my handle is jumpstartyourjoy. You can also find the Facebook page for this podcast at jumpstartyourjoy. So I hope you guys will come on back next week. And until then, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy.